So here's something new. We've just launched a beautifully designed On Being Discovery Engine. Plug in your favorite conversation or an interview that set your imagination off in new directions, and you'll be offered a constellation of kindred conversations to keep going deeper and farther. When I enter last week's interview with Juno Diaz, some of the threads the engine suggests include my earlier conversations with Brene Brown and Annette Gordon-Reed and Titus Kaphar. You can also explore hundreds of on-being shows by theme and create a playlist tailored to your curiosities. All of that at discover.onbeing.org. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Arnold Eisen. Listen to our produced show with him wherever you find your podcasts, and as always at onbeing.org. Okay. Hello? Yes, hello. Hi, this is Krista Tippett. Nice to be with you. <laughs> you too. Thank you for making the time. Pleasure. I know you're a busy person. Um, I've been reading you and reading Heschel, pretty immersed for a few days here. Um, I heard you asking if you can clear your throat, and actually, by the wonders of modern technology, even if you clear your throat on air, it's all right. Okay. <laughs> because we're going to edit this afterwards. You are going to edit. Good. Yes, and the good thing is that means that we don't have to be completely linear, and we can have a real conversation. And, um, you know, it means if you want to come back to something, if you want to say something differently or better, you can do that as well. So Good. it doesn't have to be perfect. Good. And I'm hoping you'll be speaking to Susanna Heschel and perhaps to Ed Kaplan, who's the biographer. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think we do need to speak with, um, uh, with Kaplan. And uh, we, I have spoken with Susanna Heschel actually a couple Good. of years ago, but we've also been consulting with her as we've been. Uh, thinking about this. This is going to be an on-air and online treatment, and um, it will be pretty extensive with all those layers. Terrific. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> all right. Would you say Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, or tell me what you had for breakfast? That would be the other option. We just need to get your voice. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. <laughs> I've never done that one before. I have a new colleague behind the glass. Did that work for you? So, okay, all right. I'm going to be quiet while the engineers are speaking. All right. Um, so I, I don't know if you're familiar with the program. Do you have any questions of me uh, before we begin? No, I've heard the program many times. Okay. Um, so I wanted to just, by way of setting up what I, what I hope to do this hour is, um, you know, it's, it, it, we will give people lots of background so that they can understand who Abraham Joshua Heschel was. But I think the way we want to focus this conversation and focus what we do is how, does, how do his uh, ideas um, and his legacy resonate in a 21st century life? Um, and and so you and I for the next hour or so are going to talk about how how they resonate in your particular life. And in you, in 1989, you wrote an essay about Heschel, and you proposed that people needed to read Heschel's life as well as his words. So I want to do that 
um, as we speak as well. Does that make sense? Sure. Okay. Makes All perfect right. sense. All right. And I, I'd like to begin with um, you in 1971, <laughs> a student. You've told this story, you, or you, you reference this story a lot about your um, life-changing encounter with Heschel. But I'd like for you to really tell me, tell me about it. Tell me what happened. And I how, was a reporter. Tell, yeah, tell me this for had you had you known about him? Do 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 you recall when you first heard about him? Was this a figure who had always somehow been um, part of your world? Or yes, I think I first heard about Heschel when I read him in a class that a young rabbi of my synagogue in Philadelphia gave on Saturday mornings. You know, he took us out of services, which was a great blessing because we were bored in services. Mm -hmm. And I was convinced the rabbi might have been as bored as we were. And he took us out of services. And we had a class on contemporary Jewish thinkers and among them, Abraham Joshua Heschel. And so I first encountered the paragraph, which is at the beginning of Heschel's book, God in Search of Man where he says, and I'm, I'm reading it now, but I could virtually quote this to you from memory. Good. Okay. Yeah, please read it. And I'll read you a little paragraph here. It is mm-hmm. customary to blame secular science and anti-religious philosophy for the eclipse of religion in modern society. It would be more honest to blame religion for its own defeats. Religion declined not because it was refuted, but because it became irrelevant, dull, oppressive, insipid. So there's a 16-year-old kid reading this about his own synagogue. I thought I wondered if Heschel had actually been to my synagogue and experienced that there because that was certainly what I experienced there every week, irrelevant, dull, oppressive, and insipid. But I realized that he was doing something else or trying to do something else. He was letting me know, letting all his readers know, that if this was our experience of Judaism, it wasn't really Judaism that we were experiencing. It was something else. It was a, a false imitation, and we were not getting the real thing, and we were meant to do our best to help it be that real thing for us. Hmm. Then I encountered Heschel live. I encountered him live when he came to speak at the University of Pennsylvania in the winter of 1971, and I was a reporter for the Daily Pennsylvanian, and I covered the story. I wrote about it. It appeared the next day, and I screwed up my courage and asked Heschel if I could come visit him in his office in New York, and he said yes. And there I was a few months later in an office surrounded by books, floor-to-ceiling books with barely enough room to stand or sit, Hmm. with this figure with a long white beard looking very prophetic, but with kind and twinkling eyes. And he changed my life that day, first of all, because he knew within five minutes, maybe two, that I was not there only to interview him for the Daily Pennsylvania, but that I had personal questions of great significance to ask him. He, He knew it. He sensed it. I think that he sensed it. He picked it up because he certainly responded to me that way. Mm -hmm. He saw that I was there to ask serious questions, and one of them was what good all his words were doing. You know, he had been campaigning against the war in Vietnam, just as he had marched with Martin Luther King at Selma. And I wondered, what do all your protests do? Is the world really changing? Do you think that words matter? And I think what I was really questioning then— as a perhaps a burgeoning religious intellectual, was whether religious words can make a difference in the world. There seems to be a lot of power in the world, and can religious truth to power actually make a difference? Hmm. And he heard me, and he spoke directly to me, and he at first, I think, tried to avoid the question, but then faced it directly. And I, I remember asking him with only the, uh, the chutzpah, the arrogance that only a 19-year-old can possibly muster, <laughs> how did he get the right to tell people that their religious life was irrelevant, dull, oppressive, and insipid? Where did that come from? 
because I wanted him to be, I wanted to be reassured. I wanted to know that there really was a basis for this in my own tradition. And he said to me at some point, you know, my tradition not only gives me the right to speak in its name, but the duty. Once, once he is a learned representative of that tradition, it's his obligation to bring its words to the contemporary world. And that's what he was doing. And he was doing it in no uncertain terms, with nothing left out, with no caveats or reservations. He spoke as a prophet might. He spoke with, with certainty, hmm. born of faith. You know, that, that book from, from which you quoted him, God in Search of Man, um, it's a central idea for him, but it's it's a very intriguing and you know it's not it it, it in fact is not very, the way people think about the relationship between God and man in our culture at least superficially. When when you hear just that phrase, God in search of man, I mean, what what does that mean? What did it mean to Heschel? Heschel wrote that his life was altered when he did a doctoral dissertation about the prophets about the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. And what he found compelling there was that the God who created heaven and earth cared about the fate of widows and orphans. And he said, this is somehow scandalous. It's beyond logic. How could it be that the great God of all the world cares about individuals and therefore about you and about me? And and why would this be so? And the message of the prophets is that God needs us in some way. He's not making a metaphysical statement here. He's not entering into statements about whether God is perfect or in process or any of this. He's just announcing the same message that the biblical prophets did over and over again, that God wants something from us, that God needs us to help God make this world better. And I think for Heschel, it really was a very simple matter. It really was the matter that, you know, I think of this when, I'm, when, when you're walking down the street and you see the suffering of a child, and if you're a parent, you can't stand to see the suffering of that child any more than you could stand to see the suffering of your own children. Mm-hmm. And for Heschel, the God of the Bible is really the parent of humanity and can't stand to see the suffering of God's children. And God needs God's other children to take care of this suffering. He wants something from us, if I could use the the male pronoun for God there. God Mm -hmm. wants something from us. God cares about us and and needs us to make the world perfect in a way that God apparently can't do alone. And yet, superficially, it might seem very stunning and contradictory to some people that he was formulating this understanding. I mean, obviously, he didn't formulate it himself. He came out of seven generations of Hasidic rabbis. So he came from this great tradition. And yet, as he was proclaiming this theology— that world of his fathers and grandfathers was being exterminated by um, Nazism. It, it didn't. It, you couldn't have looked at world history at that moment in time and say, "Well, God clearly cares about man," as a Jew in particular, on the surface, as I say. So, talk to me about that. You know, I think this must have been a question that Heschel pondered every day, and it struck me very much when he spoke to me. Um, that he said, quote, you have doubts, I do too, end quote. In his great book, Man is Not Alone, which was published three years before God in Search of Man, there's a climactic paragraph where he discusses what must have been a personal experience of God. And the very next chapter, you literally turn the page and there's a chapter called Doubt. I think the man who lost almost his entire family in the Holocaust must have been plagued by doubt as to God's presence in the world. And I think that he was able to speak of it nonetheless because of experiences of God's presence in his life that contradicted, as it were, the 
the massive evidence for God's absence from the world. So there wasn't certainty available, but there was experience and there was faith. I think his generations of Hasidic ancestry did play a part in that, but so did two or 3,000 years of Jewish tradition to right. which he felt himself the heir. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk, ab- <clears throat> sorry, let's talk about this sense he had of himself, um, this sense of, of the importance of the prophets. And, and in fact, he did, he did kind of embody that for a generation. Um, because I know that's something you spend a great deal of time on. There's so many ways in which delving into him, it seems like a study in paradox and polarities, right? Or a seeming paradox. His favorite words, yes. Were, the, were those his favorite words? And sure. he seems to be this fascinating combination. I mean, this this is the way I wrote it in the margins as I started just seeing it jump out everywhere. It was a combination of orthodoxy and risk. And there are other ways, many other people have said it better. Um, now he, as you said, he... It was when he was actually revising this dissertation on the prophets for publication in the early 1960s that he became convinced that he had to be involved in human affairs and human suffering. Um, He wrote this book while he was at Jewish Theological Seminary, right, where you are now. Um, There's talk to me about the biblical basis of this conviction, what he found at the center of text and tradition that he couldn't ignore. You know, I was speaking to you on the fourth day of the holiday of Passover, and you read Heschel, and the story comes to life. For Heschel, the story of the Exodus is alive and happening right in front of us. I'm reading um, from a text right now that is called Religion and Race. It was the opening address at a conference on that subject in Chicago in 1963, which was fateful for Heschel and I think for American religious history because it was on that occasion that Heschel met Reverend Martin Luther King. And you read the opening passage of this speech, and you find words which utter loud and clear the biblical basis of Heschel's faith. So with with your permission, I'll I'll read a few lines of this. Yes, please do. At the first conference on religion and race, the main participants were Pharaoh and Moses. Moses' words were, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me. While Pharaoh retorted, who is the Lord that I should heed this voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. The outcome of that summit meeting has not come to an end. Pharaoh is not ready to capitulate. The exodus began, but it is far from having been completed. In fact, it is easier for the children of Israel to cross the Red Sea and for a Negro to cross certain university campuses. Mm -hmm. So it's not hard for Heschel, with full conviction in a God who spoke to the prophets, who wants justice in the world, who wants all of his children to be treated fairly, it's not hard for Heschel to make the association between Pharaoh and Moses on the one hand, and the Jim Crow laws of the South, and the struggle of African Americans to be free. It wasn't just the African-Americans who were making this analogy between their own struggle and that of the ancient Israelites. Heschel saw it loud and clear as well, and he he deepened his faith in this parallel, as it were. The more he got to know Martin Luther King, the more he got involved in the struggle for civil rights, and the more he joined the anti-war movement and campaigned against the war in Vietnam. He knew that his stands were controversial among many Jews and non-Jews alike, but he knew that this is what 
descendants of the prophets have to do. We, we are meant to speak out on contemporary issues with the voice of the Bible. Now, did he entertain doubts about the complexity of the issues? Perhaps he was wrong. Well, I asked him this in that interview. Hmm. And again, the answer was he had reasoned it through. He had, as it were, done due diligence in the issues, in the texts, in his conscience, and come to the conclusion, even if some of his best friends were on the opposite sides of the Vietnam War issue, he had come to the conclusion that this is what God demands of us. God wants justice in this world. God wants an end to suffering in this world. And he had to stand on the side of justice and compassion. I think what's so fascinating about Heschel, though, is in our time, and this may be one of those ways, and this is not just within Judaism, one of the ways religion or people have failed their religions is that we tend to see people who are activists and people who are um, mystics. And what's so fascinating about Heschel is that is is how um, he was both, and in fact, this action and and this incredibly deep inward faith seem were part and parcel of the same thing. I mean, Edward Kaplan, his biographer, you know, said from Heschel, I learned how worship, even mystical inwardness, could lead to even incite ethical commitment. And Heschel embodied that, but I don't think that's an equation we see or think about so much in our time. That's right. And that was the greatness of the man, that he embodied paradoxes, even contradictions in himself that for others would split them into two. Here was a man who was as learned as a person could possibly be in all the texts and traditions of Judaism. Here was a person who was unquestionably pious. And yet this same man was a social activist, a teacher, uh, a media personality, as it were, in his right, own day, right. a man who knew that he had to project on a big screen what piety should mean so that others could learn from him. And I think that's what compelled me, and that's what compels uh, people still, Jews and non-Jews alike, to look to him for guidance. You know, there are many young people in search of spirituality, and there are many, sometimes the same people, but often not, uh, in search of social justice in the world. And they see these two as opposing virtues, but not Heschel. Heschel saw them as part and parcel of the same life. I, I think, you know, how many great religious thinkers are there who can count among their two or three closest friends great theologians from a different tradition? And yet there was Heschel, mm -hmm. best friends with Reinhold Niebuhr at the Union Theological Seminary across the street from the Jewish Theological Seminary where he taught. Yes. It was a sign of the largeness of the man. The man, the man could see beyond... Uh, his own purchase on God, as it were, and his own religious convictions, to see the light and the truth in, in other faiths as well. And this, this same largeness of spirit impelled him into the world. But he, he even said it's this starkly. I mean, just, you know, I'm sticking for a minute with um, the stance he took on race. Uh, he wrote uh, a note to President Kennedy in June 1963. He wrote, please demand of religious leaders personal involvement, not just solemn declaration. And then he wrote, we forfeit the right to worship God as long as we continue to humiliate Negroes. It's hard to imagine any religious leader making that stark a statement about themselves now. This is part of the great courage of the man, mm -hmm. and that courage showed itself in, in many forms. He wasn't afraid to go out on a limb. He wasn't afraid to evoke controversy and even distaste in the ears of many of his hearers. He, he was a man who stood forth 
as he thought, the, the children of the prophets should stand forth. And this is one more evidence of how that, that dissertation on the prophets and the rewriting of that dissertation years later totally transformed his life and, and then went on to transform the lives of, of many of his readers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Heschel was a figure who was, in a sense, larger than life because he spoke in this prophetic voice. He spoke with the authority of God. And there are a few who dare to do that, and I think that's, uh, that's a shame for the world. We need religious thinkers and leaders who are out there marching as well as in their study writing books as Heschel did. But he, he also said um, in his book on the prophets that he was writing about some of the most disturbing people who ever lived. And I think – and he was not a comfortable person at, at Jewish Theological Seminary. I mean he was not um, – he was disturbing to many people in his own community and outside it as well. That's right, isn't he it? He was. He was. And I think that's a price he was prepared to pay and a price mm-hmm. he, was de- he was prepared to demand of, of those around him. You know, I'm now the chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary. Right. And, and, and I wonder what it would have been like to be Heschel's colleague at a time <laughs> when he was excoriating them yes. for inaction. Or his supervisor or for, of sorts. Or his supervisor. <laughs> exactly right. And I, I, I think it must have been you know, awesome and, and, and off-putting at the same time. Yes. And the, the greatness of the man expresses itself in, in many ways. And, and one of them is this uh, personality that is iconoclastic and demanding and hard to be around, I imagine, at the same time as it was a treasure to be in his presence. Mm-hmm. So for many years, you taught at Stanford, and I know you taught a course on um, prophecy and politics, and you you, your students read Heschel, and they read Martin Luther King Jr. I just, I just wonder, if, you know, if you would tell me, um, just talk to me about what you learned about the relationship between Abraham Joshua Heschel and Martin Luther King Jr. It was a relationship of mutual inspiration to which they both testified on more than one occasion. Heschel really did see in King the incarnation of the Old Testament prophet. He said that King had been sent by God to announce to contemporary America what was needed. And you read Heschel and you read King, and the parallels are enormous and go way beyond the use that both of them made of the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, Hmm. which of course ring through loud and clear in all of King's sermons and especially in the I Have a Dream speech. Take the remarkable parallel that King grows up in a family of ministers, Southern Baptist ministers. Mm -hmm. And Heschel grows up in a family of Hasidic rabbis. And then King, as it were, tests himself the same way Heschel does. Heschel does a degree in philosophy at the University of Berlin. King does a degree in theology at Boston University. King is drawn to the academy and sometimes confessed that he had thought before he took the pulpit in Montgomery of pursuing a career in the academy as a professor of theology. Heschel remained a professor of theology, but never was content to sit in his room. He also had to be out there (laughs) in the streets, as he put it, praying with his feet, testifying to his faith. And their views of God were similar in many respects as well. You know, neither of them could speak about God totally being in control of events in the world for the reason that you mentioned earlier. How is King going to believe that God is running the show when there is 
slavery for hundreds of years, when there is Jim Crow, when there is racism before his eyes, when those who are struggling for justice are being persecuted and, and hosed down in the streets, how is Heschel going to speak of God's dominance of the world in light of the Holocaust and all the other suffering of humanity? And yet both of them spoke of God's presence in their lives. I, I remember a sermon that King gave where he spoke about his fear when it became known to him that people were out to get him when his house was going to be bombed. And he wondered how he could face up to this kind of, this kind of tragedy, this kind of uh, uh, threat of, of his own death. And he writes that it was the presence of God that came to him one night that enabled him to bear with the bombing that did in fact come. So it wasn't that God had colluded in that bombing, that God had given permission to the bomber, that God was supervising things and, as it were, folding God's hands and allowing the bombing to happen. King did not pronounce on these mysteries of divine providence. What he did do was testify to God's presence in his life as a source of hope and courage. And I think Heschel's attitude toward providence was very, very similar. Heschel was there in his life. Sorry, God was there in Heschel's life. God was there in our world but not in a way that Heschel could explain theologically or metaphysically, but he knew it from experience. And that was, I, I think, a precious parallel between the two of them that they both recognized. And of course, it was just before King's death that Heschel presented him to the Conference of Conservative Rabbis in the United States and had King right. not been murdered that day in Memphis, he would have been at Abraham Joshua Heschel's Passover Seder. The two became very, very close. They became allies, not just in the civil rights struggle, but in opposition to the war in Vietnam. And this was a, a parallel that neither of them could treat lightly. It was, I think, also a precious um, alleviation of the loneliness that both of them must have felt that they had each other in the world. And it was all the more precious because they came from different faiths. As it were, it was a validation of God's concern for all the world, of God's speaking through people of, of various religious traditions and not just one. So for the two of them, I think the presence of each other in the same struggle, in the same world, in the same country at the same time must have been a source of great blessing. I think you've reflected on how Abraham Joshua Heschel um, had a limited view of providence. There was a humility in his theology it was, I remember, I'm searching through my notes and not finding it. It seems to me there's some place where he said something like, we tend to read the Bible looking for mighty acts that God does and not seeing that all the way through the Bible, God is waiting for human beings to act. Um, do you know what I'm, do, do you know what passage I'm? Yes, I think so. And, and, and he said somewhere else, I, I'm not quoting it exactly, but yeah. something like, we talk about providence when things in the world work out the way we know we should, <laughs> yes. in accordance with our, our view of, of God and, and God's goodness. And it's such a goodness. big word in American culture exactly. that we mix think, up with our religious sensibility. And I think it's typical of Heschel and something that we all should learn from, that it's, it's not perhaps a time for great metaphysical statements about the truth of things. You know, we're all so full of doubt. And one reason for our doubt, frankly, is the virtue of our own pluralism, that we know that we are confronted with other faiths that have different views of the world, that also have some truth to them. There is depth, profundity, beauty in these other faiths. And so no one of us anymore has a monopoly on the truth about God or the way things work in the world. And that's a source 
of humility. It shouldn't paralyze us and it shouldn't throw mm. us into a, a kind of relativism where I'm okay, you're okay, everything's okay, and all things are equally true. No, that would be wrong. I think the way to go is more the way Heschel went, with it, which is with humility, we listen to God as best we can and do God's work in the world as best we can, along with others who likewise feel compelled to do God's work in the world. And that is a a vision of God that I find very appealing. Uh, it summons us to action without giving us the security of ultimate truth. Hmm. So, you know, I was, I was um, raising that point about him in, insisting on how much God expects human beings to be in partnership, how that in partnership with, um, with God and that um, that is one way he talked about why terrible things could happen, including the Holocaust or the assassination of King. But I, I think it's interesting. You're, and you're also saying that for you, those limits of providence and that humility about faith is, is central to how you're approaching some of the very, um, some of the changes in the present. But although Abraham Joshua Heschel himself was an incredible pioneer in interfaith encounter and Pluralism. I mean, pluralism isn't really a big enough word for what he was about, is it? That's right. I think he really was ahead of his time. In fact, when I read <laughs> about the, the misunderstanding of, of Abraham Joshua Heschel by his colleagues and even his friends, one wonders if a person so far ahead of his time really can be understood right. by colleagues and friends um, fully. And it takes it, it some time before we, as it were, hear the echoes more clearly than they could hear the, the voice up close. Heschel gave a speech at Union Theological Seminary in 1965 called No Religion is an Island. And yes. as I think about pluralism and its necessity and its limits today, I go back again and again to that essay because there was Heschel telling us that the first call to pluralism is our basic need for one another. <laughs> we need one another, we human beings, because we need protection against the common enemy of nihilism and meaninglessness. And the minute we are persuaded or even half persuaded that there is no sense to the world and are tempted to just give up and let the poor be poor and let the suffering suffer and let the wars go on, then we're finished as a human species. So we need each other to work together in this world, and some aspects of our existence as faith communities lend themselves to working together, and others do not. So, for example, if we put the emphasis on the details of creed, we are necessarily going to come up against barriers because creeds inevitably differ one from another. And yet, if we put the emphasis on what Heschel considered the experience of the God beyond the creed, and that God's need for us in the world, then the details fade and one is face-to-face -face with the necessity of cooperation and mutual respect because we have no choice. And there's a kind of a wisdom. Again, there's, there's humility, but there's also a kind of a wisdom there. Now, are there questions left unanswered? Yes, there are, of course. And Heschel mm -hmm. kind of swept aside differences uh, among traditions, just as he swept aside differences within the Jewish tradition. You know, he writes books about the polarities of Rabbi Ishmael and Rabbi Akiba, or how Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah can give somewhat different visions of God, different versions of what God wants 
from Israel and the world. And yet, to Heschel, these differences just don't matter as much as the commonalities of the need for us as God's partners, God's in search of all of us, and God wants something from all of us. And somehow there's a place we can't quite understand for all of these different faiths, and we'll leave it to God to figure out how they all are supposed to fit in the divine economy, what we do from our point of view on the ground where we can't see beyond our mortality is try to listen the best we can to our tradition and the suffering and the poverty, speak of God to a secular world and work together. This is the message over and over again. And, you know, I just, I just have to point out that this language is so much more uh, dramatic and radical than the kind of language that gets floated around in our culture, even when we're talking about something like interfaith encounter or faith, you know, the, our, God's need for us as opposed to our belief in God or, or um, the, you know, this thing that what you're saying that it is that you are inspired by Heschel as you think about um, pluralism in the present, um, that people of different faiths uh, – not just need to respect each other, which is the civic language we use, but have a need for each other. I mean, that really takes the whole challenge to a different level. Yes, I was privileged to join with a group of other religious leaders in Washington, D.C. last week, uh, met the Pope, and and the Pope said something which really struck me. He said, you know, that our differences are just as important as our commonality, and we should voice those differences, which he certainly went on to do. And to me, you know, the, the way through the thicket of religious difference is not, as it were, to make nice-nice. I mean, it's important that yeah. people respect each other and and be gentle on first encounter. But we're here to talk about the things that are most important in this world. Um, and, and to do that, we've got to be honest enough to be distinctive and to voice differences, be respectful of the differences, to be sure, but, but lay them out there. And I admired the Pope for being loud and clear about his beliefs, which were different from those of the non-Christians in that room. And I admired Heschel very much, especially when he spoke um, clearly, uh, without reservation, and said, this is the truth, the best I understand it. And those who've had the same experiences I've had, but as it were, don't want to act on the basis of those experiences, are, are, are doing something wrong. There's, there's something missing there. Hmm. We should be not protecting ourselves so much from the from the from the experiences streaming at us, from from the calls for our help, um, we've got to act, and and that that's a that's a part of Heschel that is often um, not heard. There's a there's a, a very strong side of him. He can be he can be oh not quite sarcastic but biting. Hmm. Um, there's a there's a place at the end of the climactic chapter of Man Is Not Alone where he said, if we've had experiences of God, but don't own up to them, if we don't say what we mean and mean what we say, we should cower with shame. And I think there was a piece of Heschel that was ashamed of the human race, not excluding Jews, of course. He was ashamed of us for not doing our part in uh, in, in alleviating suffering and, and listening to God. You know, it, it is striking, actually, how often he uses the language of um, embarrassment. I mean, you know, that we, and it, it's often in, in connection with describing this deep, often ineffable experience of God that should leave human beings embarrassed. Um, and, you know, then that's the backdrop for him talking about um, vast s- social action and risk. And uh, 
It's, it's an interesting word, though. It's a wonderful word, and you're absolutely right. It's very typical of Heschel. He thought there was something in all of us, which we might call a religious faculty. He called it the sense of the ineffable, of that which is beyond expression, of awe and mystery. And I think he is somewhat embarrassed at our collective inability to own up to this sense and to act on it. Hmm. But even if we act on it, he is embarrassed at our, as it were, humanness in the face of God's needs for us. That is, that we have infinite responsibility, as he put it, without anything like infinite understanding, that we're so lacking in the basic tools we sometimes need. And Heschel's own tradition, the Hasidic tradition, you know, gave him many voices and I think actually some sources of this embarrassment. There was the Baal Shem Tov, the great founder of Hasidism from whom Heschel was descended on his mother's side, who was calling upon us to be ecstatic with joy at the presence of God all around us. Mm. And we often fall far short of this joy. And there was the Kutzker Rebbe, the Rebbe from Kutsk, who himself was depressive and, and even in despair at the evil in the world and at human beings' inability to speak to one another and, and mend fences and, and solve problems. And Heschel, I think, inherited some of the Kutzker's depression and gloom at the world as well. And this, too, was a source of embarrassment. I think he was well aware that none of us lives up to our potential, but it's the job of a human being, particularly one who testifies to God's presence, to try to summon us all to living up to that potential. And that's what I think he tried to do. He said at one point at the end of Man is Not Alone that we learn piety by observing the deeds of the pious, that, that anyone who feels God's presence of whatever religious tradition has the responsibility to witness to that God's presence, not so much by speaking it as by, as by living it in a certain way. And that he tried to do. And whenever he failed, I'm sure he was embarrassed by that failure. This is one of the marks, I think, of his of his greatness and of his humility. I think that Edward Kaplan in his biography also describes those two, if you will, those two poles in, in his ancestry, the the ecstatic uh, mysticism and the and the and the solemnity and um and kind of sees that as maybe a source of Heschel's ability to live in a creative tension. But and I mean another polarity or something that might seem to a modern imagination on the surface to be contradictory is what we're talking about here, his, his deep engagement. Um, okay, and this is the way I might say it, that he was at one and the same time so profoundly rooted in Jewish tradition, um, and not just in his lifetime, but in this tradition of his ancestors. And at the same time, so magnanimously open to encountering um, and working with uh, and speaking with about important things, people of other faiths, and that those qualities came from the same core of his, of his religious sensibility. That's right. I think it has a source perhaps both on the theoretical level and the practical level. On the theoretical level, Heschel was a mystic. And you'll find a lot of mystics throughout the ages— Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, who believe they have an experience of God that goes beyond language, that goes beyond culture, that proves to them the unity of the divine. And then 
They understand various religious traditions as ways, as it were, of putting this experience into words, and mm. the words always fall short. And one of the things that enabled Heschel to be so open to people of other faiths and to feel real kinship with them was this fundamental mysticism, this sense that the experience of God goes beyond any individual tradition, is greater than any individual tradition, as it were, encompasses all of them. And then there was the personal experience. I mean, here was the man who was able to see in other human beings that he met, for example, the Pope and the cardinals that he met in, in encounters through Vatican II, Martin Luther King, Reinhold Niebuhr. He, he encountered other people of faith and I think was open enough to see in them depths of religious, as it were, belonging, that they too live in the presence of God, and therefore they have kinship with him. And these encounters reinforce one another and grow in him this sense of a mystery beyond any tradition's capacity to fully understand it. So there's Heschel out there in the world marching in Selma, sure, that those people marching with him are no less children of God, full of insight into God than he is. And that's, you know, quite remarkable in a great religious personality. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things I most treasure in Heschel. And, and, and we all, I think, those of us who exercise leadership in, in religious traditions, and now I have a job in helping to train um, rabbis and cantors and educators in the Jewish tradition, I think all of us have a job to try to train clergy who combine this deep commitment to their own faith with openness to others and respect for others and, and the recognition that they have much to learn from others. And you're absolutely right. This is rare in the contemporary world. Even with all of our talk about pluralism and all of our religious dialogue, the deep conviction that we need to be open to others because we have something important to learn from them, this remains rare. And it's one of the things that Heschel had to teach that I'm most grateful for. Yeah, or we treat it as something that we have to navigate, things that we have to bring together. But the, the, uh, the being deeply Jewish and being uh, boldly, a, a bold interfaith leader were organically connected for Heschel. Right? That's what's so fascinating. I want to um, read this passage from his speech at Union Theological Seminary in 1965, you mentioned this earlier, and I know this is an important passage for you, too, from his speech called No Religion is an Island. He wrote, I suggest that the most significant basis for meeting men of different religious traditions is the level of fear and trembling, of humility, of contrition, where our individual moments of faith are mere waves in the endless ocean of mankind's reaching out for God, where all formulations and articulations appear as understatements, where our souls are swept away by the awareness of the urgency of answering God's commandment, while stripped of pretension and conceit, we sense the tragic insufficiency of human faith. Pure Heschel. <laughs> yeah. Pure Heschel. And those words, you're right, are especially meaningful to me. You know, we're in the midst of a political campaign, mm -hmm. whereas often, it's often been pointed out, one's not allowed to be wrong. I mean, I mean, it's very hard to admit mistakes, and candidates do it from time to time where it seems to suit them. But the notion that one might be incapable of solving a problem is unheard of. And yet, this is the fundamental human situation, as we all know. There are certain things 
that are beyond our reach, even if we're commanded to try and achieve them. Our lives, as the rabbi said a long ago, are, are too short. I mean, the, the day is long and the work is great, and we're not commanded to finish the work, but neither are we allowed to desist from it. That's one of my favorite passages from the Talmud, and I'm, I think one of Heschel's hmm. as well. We're, we're, the work is too great for us to finish, but we're not allowed to desist from it. And, and there's Heschel constantly reminding us of the human situation. We know our frailty. We know our insufficiency. We know our sinfulness. And these are not words that are readily spoken in polite company beyond the most intimate of circles. Sometimes even in our closest friendships, in our marriages, it's hard to admit them. And and there's Heschel putting them out there in public debate as a great religious leader, Mm -hmm. instructing us that, no, these are essential words in our vocabulary. And that knowing the insufficiency of our ideas is, in fact, a virtue. (laughs) <laughs> Knowing it because unless you admit your own insufficiencies, you have no chance of doing anything correctly. Mm. And that is a lesson that all of us struggle to learn. I certainly do. Mm-hmm. And here's something else that flows from that. I mean, I sense that um, that this new generation, now you're now involved in forming the next generation, or a new generation of Jewish leaders, um, I sense that while a couple of decades ago, uh, let's say the era in which I was going to college, I, you know, early ni- 1980s, um, young people were trained in this culture to kind of make a choice between truth and tolerance. You, you could say that you believed in ultimate truths or you could honor the truths of everyone and that meant that you didn't have any strong convictions of your own. I sense that I don't think that's humanly possible. I don't think it's sustainable. Um, and I sense that this generation uh, coming up now in, in all the traditions is not willing or interested in making a choice between having a strong identity and, and um, a sense of what is true and then living pluralistically. I mean, having their tolerance grow out of that as opposed to being something that, that, that takes them out of that. Um, and I just, and it seems to me that Heschel can be a great model of that. And I just, I wonder if that's something that you are aware of or, or working with in your new role, in your new leadership role, and as an educator. Yes, and I think it's a very difficult balance to attain. Mm-hmm. This balance of deep commitment on the one hand and respect and tolerance for people of different commitments on the other hand, because what we tend to do, I think is lapse from pluralism into relativism. Right. We tend to think that um, my pluralism, my openness to people of different convictions and faiths, means that, well, this is just my opinion as opposed to your opinion. I'll never forget one of my experiences this year visiting an eighth grade class at a Jewish private school and having a discussion about relativism with the eighth graders. And there was a boy there who was insisting that my belief that murder is wrong was just my opinion. Now, he agreed with me, too. That was my opinion. That was his opinion. He said, but that's our opinion. Of course, it's just an opinion, but it's not really true. But that's how it's people have been raised opinion. in this culture. And that's, how, that's, that's bad. You see, that's yeah. also not good because we have to believe there are some things that are right and other things that are wrong. There are some things that are true and other things that are false and yet have the largeness of vision, as were, and, and the sense of mutual need to work with people who disagree with us profoundly. Of course, if they threaten us and they try to murder and they try to you know, cause mayhem, et cetera, et cetera, we've got to stop them. It's our job to stop them. We must defend ourselves and others. And I don't think you know, we're here to say that, well, genocide is a matter of opinion. Let's, let, let, they can do their genocide because that's, that's what they believe is okay. No, 
We've got to be able to say it's wrong with a capital W, and we have right with a capital R on our side at the same time as we know that we don't have all the right, we don't have all the truth, and we need other views of things. And this is a balance that's very hard. It's hard in theory. It's even harder in practice. And I, I, I think that Heschel had a lesson for us there. Again, the lesson is not so much in the books or in the individual speeches, but in how he put it all together in his life, in his friendships, mm-hmm. in, in his activities. You know, I remember, if I can confess one of my own insufficiencies, I encountered Heschel several weeks after my interview with him in Washington, D.C., And I remember I didn't go up to him to say hello. And I'm embarrassed by this, to take a Heschelian word. I'm embarrassed (laughs) by it. I'm embarrassed embarrassed because I was angry at him. Why was I angry at him? Because just as sitting in his office, I wondered if the words did any good. And I I wanted him out on the streets, not so much time in the study. Don't write the books. The books are no good. Get out there and protest. Change the world. When I met him in Washington, D.C., and saw a tired, bedraggled Abraham Joshua Heschel, who had spent his day lobbying against the war in Vietnam, I felt that somehow it wasn't worth his dignity to knock on the doors of those congressmen. Mm. He should be in his study thinking great thoughts, writing great books. It was a total contradiction of what I had felt a few months earlier. <laughs> and But it was a sign of Heschel's greatness that he knew he should be in the study and he should be on the streets and life was too short to do all of them all the time, but he would do the best he could. And that, uh, that taught me something I'll never forget. Well, and, and on Vietnam, it was interesting for me to, be, to read. I mean, he was also writing about it and some of the things he was saying about why he was there knocking on doors. Very provocative and challenging in our current context, I feel. I mean, he said... Um, it became clear to me that in regard to cruelties committed in the name of a free society, some are guilty while all are responsible. One of Heschel's <laughs> favorite lines, some are guilty, but all are responsible. You know, we're not off the hook. And if we live life with ultimate religious seriousness, we're aware every moment of the time just how many people's suffering and poverty goes into our ability to act, to enjoy, even to gather together in worship. And this could, if we let it, ruin life, on the other hand. As, as someone I know put it, how can I enjoy a cup of coffee at Starbucks when I know <laughs> that people in much of the world can't earn in a month what that cup of coffee is costing me? And is that supposed to mean that we never have the cup of coffee? Or is it supposed to mean that we exercise responsibility? The guilt can be paralyzing. The guilt can be paralyzing. And some are guilty. And they have to be reminded of their guilt and they have to be stopped. But all are responsible. And so it's our job, if if we're going to sit down, for example, at a Passover Seder, to do what the rabbis instruct the Jews to do at the beginning of that Passover Seder, which is to open the doors to those who are hungry so that those too, those people too, can, can enjoy a meal, and this was quintessential Heschel. All are some are some are guilty, but but all are responsible. I, I wonder how he apportioned guilt. Sometimes, you know, I think, as it were, the civil rights movement was an easy call for him. That the analogy of Pharaoh to Jim Crow and racism was an easy one, but it couldn't have been so simple to draw the conclusion about Vietnam, particularly when some of his closest colleagues and his closest friends were supporting the war as necessary to stop the spread of communism. And Mm -hmm. I I understand Heschel 
to have made a difficult calculation about suffering versus the possible good that might emerge from all that suffering. He made a calculation about justice and injustice, about the proper uses of power, and then he acted on the basis of that calculation and spoke in the name of God and Scripture uh, from the, for the point of view that, that he had adopted, as did King, who reached the same conclusion. It was not an easy one for him, I'm convinced. And, you know, we did a, a treatment of, uh, like the one we're doing uh, about Abraham Joshua Heschel of, of Reinhold Niebuhr and 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 um, his theology and the way he talked about war and became a public figure on war um, several times, both in World War II and, and again in Vietnam, was was an important part of who he was. And um, you know, the question I was asking people then was not, and this was a few years ago. You know, where would he? What would he say about the war in Iraq? But how would he think through um, the morality of this? And also, um, I think, you know, using Heschel's word, our our collective responsibility um, for it. And I, I, I wonder. I think whenever you look at a figure like Abraham Joshua Heschel, you you have to ask, you know, where where are these voices today? And putting aside any question of whether whether the military action in Iraq was right or wrong. Um, Heschel raises this question of ongoing responsibility. Um, I suppose that's true also of things like global poverty, right? And um, I don't know. How do you? I, I'm I'm kind of I'm 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 talking here rather than asking a question, but I'm just saying that looking at this legacy for me does raise that question of you know should religious voices, religious leaders, be even more challenging? Um, than they are now. What what would he be saying to you um, and to your colleagues now about some of these issues? Do you think? Do you think about that? I often wonder about that, and I wonder, for example, about the place that concern for social justice should play in the education of our clergy. Should they be taught not just to preach and to lead religious communities? Should they be taught community organizing? Should they be taught to lead protests? What role should this play in their own lives and in the lives of, of their congregants? And I don't find much excuse for us in our silence and in our passivity. Some people say that the issues are more complex now. Well, I'm not mm-hmm. sure the issues are more complex now. The war is war, and war is always complex. And genocide is genocide, and there's a genocide going on before our eyes. And you know, we can say the United States tried to stop it. Who knows whether we could, if we could do more, but one wonders what religious leaders should be doing and why they're not doing more. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I don't think it would bother Heschel that religious voices are loud and clear both on the right and on the left. He would say that's, that's as it should be. That's how it has to be, that people have to speak out of their own religious convictions. And if people speak differently in the name of the same God, so be it. That's one of the limitations of, of, of human existence, and God perhaps set it up this way. So I don't, I don't find um, the lack of voices to be, um, as it were, um, explicable. It's not um, justifiable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Heschel would be really critical of our silence. I want to ask you also, um, Heschel did have, I've read about in, in Edward Kaplan's biography, there is an um, 
there is one, it seems that Heschel did have one encounter with Muslim scholars before he died and that he accepted, it was a meeting in Rome and he accepted that with, um, with great delight and it was not uncomplicated as you can imagine, but he was open, but most of his interfaith work was with Christians. Um, here you are, here we are in 2008, um, you are a leader of a Jewish institution in the midst of the era of the war on terror um, in the post-September 11th world. Um, so much of interreligious encounter is necessarily focused on Islam right now. And I, I wonder how you, again, how, although this was not so much the realm where Heschel worked expl- explicitly, what do you hear him saying to you, or how is his legacy guiding you in this? I don't have any doubt that Heschel would be engaged in active conversations with Muslims had he been alive today. You know, there's some there's some occasions when people say, what would Heschel think about that, or what would he do yeah. about that? And I honestly have to say, let's be careful in ascribing <laughs> views to the person he never got to express. But of this one, given that one encounter with Muslims that you mentioned, and given his work week after week, month after month, year after year in dialogue with Christians, one has to believe that today Heschel would be actively engaging Muslims as well. And he would do so, first of all, because of the incredible commonality of our traditions and how much those traditions have learned from one another. Heschel, you know, in 1935, wrote a biography of the great Jewish philosopher Moses Maimonides, Mm -hmm. the great medieval philosopher. Maimonides was profoundly indebted to Muslim thinkers of his time. Maimonides would not have been possible without Muslim theology. So neither can we say that Jewish mysticism could have happened without Christian mysticism and, and Sufism. So Heschel, I'm sure, would have been in the first ranks of debate and discussion with Muslims as well as with, with Christians. I think, though, there's, a, there's another door that we should walk through that Heschel perhaps opened for us but could not walk through, and that's dialogue with faiths beyond monotheism. Mm-hmm. And here, it, it, I think it might have been more difficult for Heschel, and it's more difficult for those of us who are in monotheistic traditions, but it's necessary nonetheless, again, because the world calls us to this task. When, when one reflects on the fact that religion still provides the legitimation of power and authority for most of the world's peoples— when one knows that the world is hanging by a thread and we have the possibility of, of saving this planet now or destroying it, and, and, and we're going to be influenced profoundly by religion as we face that question, then religion has a role to play that summons all religious leaders of all traditions, as far as I can see, to dialogue so that we can find ways of talking to each other and talking past our differences. I, I can't imagine that Heschel wouldn't be engaging in this to the best of his ability right now when the world's very survival so much depends on us, on, on this effort. He, he gave us the tools for religious dialogue, and I can't believe that Heschel wouldn't be exercising them right now when we need this more than ever before. Mm-hmm. And is there, is there anything in his legacy that, that challenges you perhaps to do it a little bit differently than, than what, what might seem the obvious um, approaches? I don't even know what I'm talking about, but there's... <laughs> I, you know, Heschel is, um, oh, 
Um, let me not know what I'm talking about either. Let's think about this for a second. <laughs> I just I don't think he would do it the obvious way, whatever that is. Um, you know, for instance, um, as chancellor of JTS right now, of the Jewish, as chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary right now, I'm de facto one of the leaders of conservative Judaism. And it's my responsibility, I think, to help make that movement uh, as strong as it can possibly be. Uh, not being a rabbi gives me a perspective, I think, which is unusual. Certainly, almost all the chancellors of JTS have been rabbis beforehand. Mm-hmm. And being a scholar of American Judaism gives me perhaps another perspective on the matter. And so I think it's my responsibility to speak frankly about the situation in which we find ourselves as conservative Jews. And that frankness is inspired by Heschel. So I wrote a column recently, for instance, noting that many synagogues today are still uh, boring and uh, strike (laughs) their worshipers as irrelevant. Not all. There are many synagogues that pulsate with life. One should stress that fact. I think Mm -hmm. there are many more synagogues of that sort than there were when I was a child growing up in Philadelphia in the 1950s. There are many wonderful synagogues, there are many religious schools, but there are many that are still boring. There are many that are uh, victims of routinization where things go on every week in exactly the same fashion. And that's not good for our spiritual lives. And I think all of us need to heed Heschel. I, I, I often reflect on the fact that Heschel addressed the assemblage of reform rabbis in 1953 and told them they needed more attention to Jewish law which, of course, Reformed <laughs> Judaism had, had rejected. Right. And then he speaks the same month to the conservative rabbis and said, you have too much attention to law. You need attention to Jewish spirituality. So I'm always reminded of Heschel telling us what we need, not letting us be smug or congratulatory. And that, I think, is a, is a good message for every leader. Don't just focus on what you're doing right. Ask yourself every week and every month what you're still lacking. What is it you're doing wrong? What, what could you do better? It is that's, kind of that prophetic inclination to mistrust the whatever the comfort zone is, right? <laughs> right. And there are some days at the end of a long day when you're dealing with the crisis of the moment when you don't need Heschel to remind you of the 10 or 12 things you still haven't gotten right or the things you haven't done. You'd much rather be applauded for those you have managed to do halfway right. And that's not what Heschel's for. Right. I want to talk briefly just about another challenge that you have before you. Um, homosexuality um, is an issue that is divisive, sometimes bitterly divisive, a- across the religious traditions right now um, and in our culture. It's kind of an unanswered question that is challenging a lot of um, given, things that seem to be given. Um, and interestingly, conservative Judaism, um, and I don't know, if, tell me if you don't agree with what I'm saying, this has, has treated um, this issue of how of discernment about um, ordaining rabbis, gay and lesbian rabbis, um, as a matter almost of internal pluralism, um, which is that that there are different different theological approaches are possible, and that there is um, that individual congregation and institutions have some latitude to stake their own positions. I I just wonder, um, and it's also about same sex unions. So I wonder, have you thought about? what Heschel's counsel on this might have been. Again, not on what's right or wrong, but on how to navigate um, this this moment and this. Yeah, there were two teachings of Heschel that resonated loudly with me when 
I, along with others at JTS, was making the decision about whether we should ordain gay and lesbian clergy. The first was the respect for difference inside the tradition when it came to the proper interpretation of what God demands. You know, Judaism traditionally has worked through Jewish law. The conservative Judaism still works that way. We are the heirs to a tradition which has been subject to change all along, but is a matter of great constancy. And one does not break with 2,000 years of precedent lightly, certainly not when that precedent is based on a verse of Scripture that could not be clearer. I'm talking about a verse in Leviticus, mm-hmm. which seems anyway, I said, could not be clearer, but of course, people are interpreting it in various ways now, but seems to prohibit male homosexual relations. Now, what I heard Heschel saying was not do this or do that. This is the right interpretation. This is the wrong interpretation. What I heard Heschel saying was, remember my book where I talked about Rabbi Akiba's differences with Rabbi Ishmael 2,000 years ago and how both of these rabbis knew that their words were the words of the living God, even when, in, when they were interpreting the words of the living God differently. So it was a commandment to mutual respect within a context of agreement. And this was the second warning from Heschel that I was hearing. You have to disagree. You can't not disagree when it comes to questions of this sort because your human experience is going to vary and all of you are forced to make a difficult balance between what tradition says and how you hear tradition speaking on the one hand and how you can give respect and love to the human being standing in front of you on the other hand. And there's no science to that. That's an art. There's no precise direction that can say that this is the right way to do it and this is the wrong way to do it. But what I heard Heschel saying was, This tradition is important, and the tradition itself needs to be preserved, and the tradition can only be preserved in any of its forms, including conservative Judaism, if we know, if we really know for sure that what unites us is far greater than what divides us. And so there again, I heard Heschel speaking to me out of a tradition that is diverse, but also unitary, that has many many voices in it, but also says the same thing on many occasions. And so I I felt the need to emphasize our commonality, what we share as conservative Jews and indeed as Jews in general, what we share as homosexuals and heterosexuals at the same time as I was talking about differences among various groups. And this this balance, this polarity, this dialectic is is so Heschel through and through. And I think it continues to speak to us all. You know, I have pages and pages of notes, but I... I as do I. <laughs> as do you. Well, I, I, what else would you like to talk about? I mean, what, what's been on your mind as you've been thinking forward to this and knowing you were going to be speaking about Heschel? What came to the surface that feels important and relevant right now? Heschel spoke about God in a way that I find um, more than than compelling, um, absolutely indispensable. He spoke about God out of personal experience. And, And let me say that Heschel's testimonies to his own experience of God 
um, greatly outnumber and uh, outflank and uh, have a greater depth than anything that I could possibly write from my own far more limited experiences of God. And yet I find myself as a modern, rational, university-trained human being trying to find my way in the world. I find myself spoken to, addressed rather directly by this man and his conversation with God. I think he brings God into our lives and into our world in a way that is precious because of his hesitancy and his humility and his openness to other faiths and also the crystal clear insight of what God wants to us. So one of the things that I've been thinking about lately as I, a person who spent his life as a professor of religious studies, who, who am, is not a rabbi, but is now charged with leading a Jewish institution and educating future clergy, we, I think, need to find a way of speaking credibly about God in the world. And I'm grateful mm. to people of whatever faith who can do that for us. Um, that's, that's one of the things that's been on my mind. I, I also, I, I wrote a column this past week addressed primarily to young people. And when I wrote that column addressed to young people who are about to celebrate the Passover Seder, I very much had in mind the last paragraphs in Heschel's recorded interview with Carl Stern oh, right. for the Eternal Light program that also appears in, in the collection Moral Grandeur and Spiritual Audacity, edited by Susanna Heschel. And on that page, if you remember, Heschel speaks particularly to young people and the message is not to despair, not to succumb to nihilism. Remember that the world is meaningful, that history is meaningful, and that they have a part to play in it. And I've tried to echo that message every chance I get because I think young people often have the sense that they're meant to stand in waiting until they grow up, hmm. until they maybe settle down or get a career or, or find a so, someone to partner with and have kids with. And the message from Heschel was exactly the opposite. The, Meschel, the, sorry, the message from Heschel was that whatever age you are, you have a soul, you have a spirit, you have a heart, you have a mind, use them. You have experience, draw on it. You have challenges to pose, pose them. You have learning, use it to teach us. And that is something that I think young people here all too rarely. You have to wait till a certain age before you can drink. You wait till a certain age until you can vote, until your opinions are heard. Heschel wasn't about to wait. He went out and spoke to young people and listened to them and knew they had something to teach him. And I hope that all of us hmm. can do that as well. You know, something um, it, you alluded to at the very beginning of our conversation, but um, in terms of... Um, speaking about God, there's, there, again, this is another one of these polarities in Heschel. There's this absolute insistence that what we are talking about here is ineffable, will always defy words, and yet an insistence, as you said, you know, he said to you, words matter. I mean, Susanna Heschel has talked about how her father would say that, that uh, let me just find this, um, I just I don't want to paraphrase this. Oh, oh that um, 
you know, she said he used to remind me that the Holocaust did not begin with the building of crematoria, um, with tanks and guns. It began with uttering evil words, with defamation, with language and propaganda. Words create worlds, he used to tell me when I was a child. Um, Maybe I'm just bringing that up because for me, as somebody who has a program called Speaking of Faith, that seems like an important point. <laughs> but <laughs> when, he, when he said words create worlds, he was paraphrasing one of the most important uh, daily prayers that Jews say, blessed is God who spoke and the world came into being. And Heschel was a master of words. He was a master of words, not just in English, but in German, Yiddish, Hebrew, I don't know enough to judge the Polish. Mm -hmm. But Heschel knew that what we say matters. That's one of the things he taught. He wrote not so much in chapters as in paragraphs. I, 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 when I visited him in his office, I saw him scribbling on little pieces of yellow paper. And then at one point, he opened a drawer and the drawer was full of these scraps of yellow paper with mm -hmm. his sentences written on them. And I know that what he <laughs> did was when he would wrote, write a book, he would string together the sentences into pearls of language. Heschel's writings are much more poetry than they are prose. They're, they're prose poems. They're, they're written not in linear argument, as it were, but in something like sonata form or, mm -hmm. or in poetry. They're, they're thoughts that are introduced and then recapitulated later on. He's a man who wants to summon something in us beyond our rational, logical faculties. He wants to summon our care and our love. And poetry is much better for that than prose is, certainly than logical, philosophical prose is. He, he wants us to take every word seriously and therefore writes incredible words. Maybe I could quote a few more of them, for example. Yes, yes, please do. Here are two, two passages from Man is Not Alone. This is the passage where the first chapter summoning us to the ineffable, that which is beyond language, reaches its climax. The search of reason ends at the shore of the known. On the immense expanse beyond it, only the sense of the ineffable can glide. It alone knows the route to that which is remote from experience and understanding. We do not leave the shore of the known in search of adventure or suspense or because of the failure of reason to answer our questions. We sail because our mind is like a fantastic seashell, and when applying our ear to its lips, we hear a perpetual murmur from the waves beyond the shore. So there's Heschel with gorgeous words summoning us to the reality that we all know is beyond words because we've sensed this. We felt it. We felt the inadequacy of our words to comprehend things that we've sensed. We sail because our mind is like a fantastic seashell. And when applying our ear to its lips, we hear a perpetual murmur from the waves beyond the shore. Hmm. And perhaps I could read from the end of chapter nine in Man is Not Alone, mm -hmm. when Heschel is describing what I think has to be a personal religious experience. And he, he says before this paragraph that in general, we resist the knowledge that's coming at us. We stay inside what he calls a cage and live on a dainty diet because we're apprehensive about what is waiting for us outside. But then 
a certain moment, something happens to us. Okay. And let me read you his description of what happens to us. A moment comes like a thunderbolt in which a flash of the undisclosed rends our dark apathy asunder. It is full of overpowering brilliance, like a point in which all moments of life are focused or a thought which outweighs all thoughts ever conceived of. There is so much light in our cage, in our world. It is as if we were suspended amidst the stars. Apathy turns to splendor unawares. The ineffable has shuddered itself into the soul. It has entered our consciousness like a ray of light passing into a lake. Refraction of that penetrating ray brings about a turning in our mind. We are penetrated by God's insight. We cannot think anymore as if God were there and we are here. God is both there and here. God is not a being, but being in and beyond all beings. A tremor seizes our limbs. Our nerves are struck, quiver like strings. Our whole being bursts into shudders, but then a cry wrested from our very core fills the world around us as if a mountain were suddenly about to place itself in front of us. It is one word, God, not an emotion, a stir within us, but a power, a marvel beyond us, tearing the world apart. The word that means more than universe, more than eternity, holy, holy, holy. We cannot comprehend it. We only know it means infinitely more than we are able to echo. Staggered, embarrassed, we stammer and say, God, who is more than all there is, who speaks through the ineffable, whose question is more than our mind can answer, God to whom our life can be the spelling of an answer. That's Heschel, God. The words are inadequate, but our life is the spelling of an answer. Our life is the spelling of an answer. I mean, I wanted to ask you, what what does that mean? I mean, it's beautiful, and what is it? What is he saying there? I think there's not a finite set of directives, but a set of principles by which one can live. Know that life is serious. Know that God is in our world. Know that God's presence can be a factor in your life. Know that God wants something of you. Whatever religious tradition you belong to, find the pattern for living, Heschel's words, prescribed by that tradition for bringing God into the world. God wants relief of the suffering of God's creatures. God wants justice for all God's creatures. There are marvelous things here to behold. Look at that sky. Look at its stars. Look at these trees. Feast on the wonder all around you. And then go out there and make sure that human beings are able to eat and breathe and fight off disease and so appreciate God's wonder in the world. There are a set of directives which I think are quite clear and applicable to all of us and just as applicable now as they ever were. It's not a recipe. It's not a set of detailed prescriptions. And yet there is a wisdom for life there. Hmm. Um. Well, this is wonderful. Um, anything else? 
Anything else? I'll you... think of it later on. Yeah, oh, if you brought another <laughs> reading. Right now, all right. Thank you. I, I've enjoyed this very well, much. It's a it's a privilege to be able to to speak about Heschel. Well, thank he you. He really is my hero. As and you well, know. and I'm we're I've wanted to do this. We've wanted to do this program about him for a long time, and we're just thrilled to be getting to it. So um, and excited about putting it out there. Thanks so, for doing um, it. You've been in touch with a few people on the staff, and you'll hear from us about when this is happening and if there's, you know, there may be that we, there might be a question um, and we'd send that to you and your, your assistant who we've been working with. And thank you so much again for making the thank time. Thank you very It's great much. to talk to you. Thank you. Okay. It's been a privilege. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.